Hey, Travis Rogers here. When you're not listening to me on the Lakers pre- and post-game shows, tune in to The Experience with Laferne Cusack, where she goes beyond the play and focuses on athletes, fans, and the biggest events that inspire and shape our community. Listen to The Experience with Laferne Cusack, Sundays, 5 to 6 a.m. ESPN LA 710. No condition is permanent is a famous African proverb that caught the eye and attention of Ambassador Lewis while serving in the Peace Corps in the 1960s. He carried the meaning and value of these words both in his business and personal life for the last 50 odd years. This book is filled with memories that highlight the triumphs as well as the struggles the ambassador faced throughout his career. As an athlete, you think of the ways that you can use your passion, your focus, your drive to succeed. Ambassador Lewis talks about this in his book. It all begins with self to succeed in life. If you are looking for an inspirational read that will motivate you to become the best version of yourself, then it all begins with you is the book for you. It will teach you life lessons on how to discover your passion and succeed in life. ESPN LA 710. Welcome to ESPN. I'm Laferne Cusack. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we're going to talk all about No Condition is Permanent with former Ambassador Delano Lewis talking about his book, his life, and all that he has done to make our community better. Welcome to the show, Ambassador Lewis. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Tell us how you got started in your career. Well, thank you very much. I feel very blessed uh, to have the opportunity that I did have. I'm from Kansas originally, grew up in Kansas City, Kansas, an all-black neighborhood of Kansas City, went to segregated schools uh, in Kansas City, Kansas, graduate of Sumner High School, which was the only black high school in the state at the time, a good foundation and good teachers, went on to the University of Kansas and law school. Washburn School of Law in Topeka. I did 10 years in the federal government as a lawyer and administrator and had some great experiences in Justice Department, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the Peace Corps. I was Peace Corps staff in Nigeria and Uganda. And then I was on Capitol Hill working for a senator and uh, the non-voting delegate from the district, Walter Fauntroy. And so that was the beginnings of my life and experience in Washington, D.C., And I went on to do other things, but that's how the career started. Now, did you plan for this? I mean, did you plan to, to, (laughs) you know, rise to where you have? uh, Or was it something that just came about within your connection? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, I planned and then I didn't plan. I, I really had this passion in high school that when I graduated in 1956, uh, I was very concerned about, you know, the plight of African-Americans and minorities uh, and the whole segregation model in our country. And I said, maybe I could make a difference uh, as the civil rights movement was beginning to to uh, crescendo. Maybe I could make a difference in the law. So I thought about going to law school. So right at high school, in my yearbook, it says ambition lawyer. <gasps> so that was one plan. <laughs> and seven years later, uh, along with... Uh, uh, a wonderful spouse and two children. Seven years later, I became a lawyer at age 24. Wow. So that was really in the plan, and Justice Department was the first opportunity, but it was in the Internal Security Division. It was not in civil rights. So I was really itching to get into civil rights because that was the passion, and I got into Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. But the, the, the I moved away from the plan 
and took uh, a risk uh, by leaving the country, leaving the law directly, and going into the Peace Corps as Peace Corps staff in another part of the world. So that was not totally in the plan, Mm -hmm. but it was a wonderful experience and then created uh, so many other opportunities. So to answer your question, part of my life had planned to it, but the others were being open to new opportunities. And that's what I talk about in my first book. And your first book is It All Begins With Self, which... Um, That's right. Which I talk about as well. Is like, well, you have to take care of oneself before you can take care of other people and move forward in your life. Exactly right. And I talk about the book, It All Begins With Self, how to discover your passion, connect with people, and succeed in life. And the self business is taking a, a very strong look at yourself Uh, do a self-assessment. What are my strengths? What are the things I don't do as well? And then once you do that, capitalize on those strengths. And and then I talk about developing a plan that you talked about. Uh, You asked the right person. Uh, My wife said when she first met me that I was probably born with a date book in my hand. Uh, (laughs) I've always had this, this desire to plan things out. And I talk about the book, once you get a sense of self uh, an understanding of self of the things that you can do best, then think about what you want to do. What are your dreams? And then I call it the end game, uh, E-N-D, decide what that is and then work backwards. Okay, if I want to be in sports, then what I'm going to have to do to, to be the best I can be, I'm going to have to go here, I'm going to have to train here, I'm going to have to have this kind of skill, and i got to produce and be productive and I'll get there. And so uh, I talk a lot about uh, examining oneself and then moving forward to make it happen. Right. And we talk about that a lot as well as, you know, being an athlete you or being in any type of sports related field or I guess in any field. You have to have the vision. You have to know right. what your strengths and skills are, your talents, and you have to exactly. go for that and put all your energy into that direction. And if you dilute that energy, it will take, I feel that it will take you longer to get there. That's right. Uh, that, that I talk a lot about that. That's what you call focus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you know, it, focus is very, very important uh, because you then really put all your energies in that direction because you know the goal that you're after. You know the end result that you're after. So you're focused on it and you put your energies there. And you also say, if I don't have these innate skills or if I don't have the foundation with this one uh, activity, then I've got to find out where I can get those skills uh, that I need, whether it's in sports or whether it's in a basic career. And if I don't have it, I got to go get it. And so I train, I go out and I get it. And that helps me get that job when it comes. So Ambassador Lewis, you took the risk to go into the Peace Corps. What led you to that? Like, you you say you're a planner, but being a planner, taking risks, how did that come about? uh, Yes, that, that's also I talk about in the second book, No Condition is Permanent, and a little more detail how that happened. Uh, a Justice Department colleague, uh, I left Justice and went to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, but I went to dinner with this colleague after I left, 
and my wife and I went to dinner and had this wonderful dinner. And a lady leaned across the table at dinner, one of the guests, and said, how would you like to go to Africa? Mm. And I said, Africa? I'm just out of Kansas. <laughs> that was my exact response. I had no idea. And so I said, how could I do that? And she said, with the United States Peace Corps. I said, I'm married. I have uh, two children. And I thought that was for unmarried single people, you know, uh, uh, without a family, uh, how can I do this? And she said, you can go as Peace Corps staff. Here's my card. And I looked at the card. It was Cynthia Courtney, desk officer, West Africa Peace Corps. So I talked to my wife about it, and we went. I went to the interview and came back, and she said that you could go as Peace Corps staff. Uh, you would have your housing provided for. You'd be on a, a federal salary. Uh, you, you know, you'd be provided for, and you would be an administrator uh, supporting Peace Corps volunteers in the field. So I knew that I would leave the law, but I would be an administrator then. I could use the law in many ways, and but I'd be associated with the culture and learn, and it was extraordinary. And so it was uh, taking a risk, but it had some direction to it. Right. And as we, as I, as, as it happened, I was an assistant director, associate director, they called it in Nigeria, and we had to leave because of the Civil War in 67. So we were evacuated and we got all the volunteers out. And then I came back to Washington and they promoted me to be the country director of the Peace Corps in Uganda. Wow. So I was in charge of over 160 volunteers in Uganda as Peace Corps director. So at age 28, I'm running a Peace Corps program. <laughs> so, I mean, so, wow. so again, I talk about the book. Yes, I took a risk, but I was able to do the job and I was able to move up and take advantage of a tremendous opportunity. And so, uh, you know, little did I know at that time, I worked closely, although uh, Peace Corps is not a part of the foreign uh, policy, they, they're separate from State Department, but I had a very good ambassador, and he would invite me to the country team meetings uh, so I could sit there and see how uh, our embassy worked. And who did I know 37 years later I would be an ambassador myself? So those are the opportunities that uh, you need to take advantage of. What did you take out of running the Peace Corps into your other career? Well, the, the, the Peace Corps experience was, was marvelous because it was just beginning. It started under John F. Kennedy in, in 62, and I came into the Peace Corps in 66. So it was only uh, four years old, uh, and they were bringing in young, mostly young, uh, volunteers who had had one college degree or some skilled experience and brought them in and trained them for 30 days and said, you can do this. <laughs> And so most of, most of the volunteers had this, this spirit of motivation that they could accomplish things and do things. Many of them were teachers uh, in secondary and uh, mostly secondary elementary schools. And then we had community development workers and health workers. But so what I took from it was an administrator. I, I learned how to run an office, mm -hmm. not only of Americans, but of uh, people from other countries. So I became an administrator. I then learned how to associate with governments. Uh, I was a part of uh, liaison with the Ministry of Education or the Ministry of Health in the countries that, that, I, that I serve. So the n number one, learn how to be administrator, learning how another government works and how to be a liaison government uh, uh, to a government. So I took from that experience uh, also 
how to get along with people, how to live in another culture, uh, trying to learn local languages. So it broadened my horizons. So I had, uh, so I learned people skills. I learned cultural ex- experiences and deep cultural experiences, and then I became a strong administrator. So all of that put me in good stead as I began to explore other opportunities when I came back to the country. And when you came back, how did you view America? I mean, did your vision of America change while you were overseas? That was a, that's a beautiful question. Yes, it did. I came back in 1969, and I know many of your listeners uh, can remember what, what happened in our country in 1968 when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Uh, I was in Uganda at the time, and shortly thereafter, Senator Robert Kennedy, who was running for president of the United States, was also assassinated. I mean, these strong leaders who believed in people and certainly believed in civil rights were gone. And riots happened after the death of Martin Luther King Jr. And I saw on Time magazine cover, there were tanks, army tanks going down the street of Washington, D.C. to try to contain the riots. And so the country had changed when I came back in 1969. Uh, The civil rights movement was moving strongly. There were marches and demonstrations. Uh, it, it, it was a changed place. Mm-hmm. Um, then the Vietnam War was also beginning to uh, escalate. Um, so I came back to a very different America. Uh, there had been some progress, but wow, were we, in, were we in a real state of transition in terms of where this country was going? So uh, that did weigh heavy on me, and uh, I ended up saying I should spend more time. I wanted to stay back in the country. Uh, my wife said, I had a chance to be a Peace Corps director in Korea or Thailand, and I chose not to accept that position. I wanted to stay and try to do something as things were changing on the social scene in the United States. So when how did you overcome like that that condition, I want to say that that social condition of how many things were changing in the in the country and really get behind a cause? Well, uh, again, going back to our first discussion about planning and focus, um, I was always figuring out, uh, keeping that mission in mind, looking at how the world had changed and how the U.S. had changed. And, and the whole civil rights movement was still moving forward and lots more work needed to be done. Um, and I had this experience now of overseas, but how could I what can I do? Mm-hmm. So I start talking to some Peace Corps friends. And uh, again, I talk about relationships in both of my books. Relationships and mentors are so important. This was a Peace Corps relationship of a, a person who was with Peace Corps in Washington. And she said, I have a friend in Senator Edward Brooks' office. And she's a social worker and uh, a caseworker, I'm sorry, for for the senator. And she said that she thought that, you know, being an African-American senator, the only black in the Senate uh, at that time, uh, he she felt the person in his office, he needs to have, quote, a professional uh, person or a lawyer or a person of skill, uh, also of color Mm -hmm. uh, in his office. She said, I'm here. I'm an African-American woman, but I'm doing casework. I would like to see someone in policy and legislation who's who's of color working for the senator. So she she mentioned this to my friend, and I decided to to apply for a legislative assistant opportunity. 
Uh, and I was sort of turned down the first time, which is another important part of the book that you don't give up. Mm-hmm. I met with the, the uh, administrative assistant and he said, you've got a great background. We could probably use you, but we don't have the money in our budget to bring on another legislative assistant. So I, I said, fine. And within a few weeks, uh, I got a call from uh, the senator himself from his office wow. and said, uh, Mr. Lewis, uh, the senator would like to have an appointment to meet you. Could you come in? And so I said, sure. <laughs> so I went to meet, I went to meet Senator Edward Brooke of Massachusetts and uh, we got, we hit it off. Wow. And uh, he offered me the job of legislative assistant to be in charge of social legislation, education, social security, welfare, health, those issues uh, to help him uh, at the U.S. Senate. So there again, keeping in mind my original focus, now I'm working for a U.S. Senator. Now, he happens to be Republican, and I I had been a strong Democrat growing up, but, you know, he never asked my party. Uh, we talked about <laughs> what I could do. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out he was a very liberal Republican and very strong in civil rights, but he was also very strong in foreign relations. So I had a chance to work uh, on many levels in his office. And when Walter Fontroy was elected non-voting delegate to the House of Representatives, Walter Fontroy was looking for a chief of staff, and he wanted that chief of staff to be a person of color. And he wanted that person to have had some experience. Well, there weren't too many of us uh, of people of color uh, who had Capitol Hill experience, uh, and I was one of the few, so I put my hat in the ring and to become chief of staff on the House side for Delegate Walter Fontroy. So the point of that story is when I went to talk to Senator Brooke, he said, I said, I have this opportunity to be chief of staff. So when you move up in the hierarchy, legislative assistant's a good job. Chief of staff is running the whole office. (laughs) Uh, Now, so so it was a great move up on the other changes. So I got to see the Senate side. This would be looking at the House side. So Senator Brooke looked at me and he said, Walter, he said, that's great. I, I mean, I'm very proud that he's now over in the House. And uh, he said, are you a Democrat? I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, that sounds like a good move. So that's how I got over uh, and I interviewed and was appointed to Walter Fontroy. He was Reverend Walter Fontroy, uh, a confident Dr. Martin Luther King. So I now could combine the administrative skills that I had, yes. combine civil rights stuff. Uh, he was a part of the whole... King, uh, Martin Luther King organization. So uh, King had been assassinated, but Coretta Scott King would come to the office and uh, Andy Young was a congressman at the time. Jesse Jackson was coming through. So I'm now right in the middle and the Congressional Black Caucus was just beginning. So I'm now right in the middle of the movement. Wow. (laughs) Ambassador Lewis, you are only a, a, a few black men who professionally worked in politics. What were some of the challenges you faced? It's um, it, it's kind of tough uh, in many respects. Um, you Again, you have to have a sense of self and a sense of purpose. And I, I was always, you know, generally uh, with a sense of direction. So I, I kept my eye on the ball, and that ball was how can I make a difference yes. in my life uh, to support my family and to also be true to the purpose that I thought that I even talked about back in high school. So I kept, I kept thinking about that, and I had experience on the Senate side and the House side. Um, and, you know, you just have to 
be vigilant. Yes. Uh, and also, you know, people, yeah, there are people who um, may be jealous or people who, who try to pull you down, but you've always got to keep your head up and keep looking uh, for that purpose that, that, that you had when you first started, that vision that you talked yes. about. Yes. So, so um, uh, go ahead. So with your with your working with the Republicans and the Democrats as well, I can see that there can be a case study of how both parties can work together and accomplish something. <laughs> oh, it's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. I talk about things in my book. I, I wrote the book, uh, this new book, No Condition is Permanent. Uh, my son, Brian Lewis, and I uh, put this together and my wife, helped, Gail, helped me edit it. And the things I talk about are quite relevant today that Senator Edward Brooke uh, was the only black in the Senate at that time, and he was African-American Republican. But he was a liberal Republican, and so he had very liberal views on progressive social issues. And there were a number of liberal Republicans at that time, Jacob Javits in New York, Mark Mark Hatfield of Oregon, uh, to name a few. Uh, But today you don't see as many, quote, liberal uh, Republicans. You see some moderates, but many of them are more conservative. And then I went to the House side and got a chance to work with the Congressional Black Caucus and to work with black politicians and to work with uh, and the non-voting delegate who was also African-American on the Democratic side. And um, I could see how I did see how both parties could work together and to get things done. And that happened uh, during the time that I that I was there. So you're right that if you're thinking about America and how you can solve the issues confronting America and our communities, we're going to need to understand politics and how to bring both sides together for the good of of our community across the board. Do you find that more people are aware of how processes work in the in the government now than ever before? Absolutely not. No, no, not 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 at all. That's unfortunate Mm. uh, that, um, you know, a lot of things about our educational system we need to work on. First of all, we know very little bit in our schools. We know very little about about geography. So we don't know much beyond our own communities and about certainly not beyond America. Uh, We don't know. uh, We only stress one language. Uh, English, and sometimes we don't do English very well, but we don't look at other languages. Uh, we don't understand the political process, and in many instances, we don't even vote. Yes, when people have been out on the uh, out uh, demonstrating for the right to vote, uh, and we don't even exercise that right. Uh, but that question of understanding the system is a very key question. Yes. You've got, you need to know how the system, how the system operates. You need to understand how the political op- system operates. What, how, how are laws made? How can things be changed? What are the pressure points? What are the lobbying points? How does it work? And I must tell you, we're woefully ignorant yes. uh, as Americans about the system. This is ESPN LA 710. I'm speaking with Ambassador Delano Lewis, uh, and we're talking about no condition is permanent. Ambassador Lewis, now, what do you think our community can do to get more uh, details about how the process, how the political structure works and how to use that for their advantage? Yes. Well, you know, all we need to do is, uh, and community is to think about one of the great community organizers who started as a lawyer, but he started 
in community uh, organizing, and that was President Barack Obama. And I think if we take a lesson for what he did and then how he structured his campaigns on two successful presidential elections, it was all around his strong experience in community organizing. And what you do is get people of like mind to form together, to move together uh, on a strategy to get to the end result. And it's just like sports. You organize the team, you're coached, you go out, you go, you know exactly what the drills are, you know exactly what the plays are, and you're going for that goal line. It's the same way in community organization. You get a sense of what is the purpose, what's our goal, and we figure out how do we organize and how do we get people energized and working together to achieve the result we need to achieve. So we start on basic grassroots level. He did that in terms of fundraising. It was Barack Obama who put in that grassroots fundraising for, you know, every 50 cents, every dollar counted, and he didn't rely on the big packs and the big money. And Beto, Beto Rourke, uh, who's a congressman running for uh, Senate in the state of Texas, which is uh, our neighbor here in New Mexico, uh, he has that same grassroots support, and he's running against Ted Cruz. I don't want to get partisan here, but his, his grassroots organization is, is running very, very strong. So that is community organizing, getting together, understanding the issue, and figuring out how we can effectuate change by understanding the system and you making that system work for us. So how do you see the the uh, politi- political structure going? Do you, do you see, I know, and I keep referring to your book, No Condition is Permanent, do you see us collaborating more, more that it's, it's not party, it's not about the party, it's about us as Americans? Or am I just being, you know, naive? Well, I think it's, it, it's, it's lots going to remain to be seen, and I, I, I've been around long enough uh, to be cautious on, on moving too quickly. Uh, I think we're going to have a two-party system for some time to come. I, I do, I am a little disappointed that that two-party system is not functioning, and sometimes we think about maybe a third party or others, but the third party system has really not taken hold in America. The third party has been a spoiler in many, you know, depending on what side you're on, but it's been a spoiler in many, in many instances. So I think a stronger two-party system and maybe even a third party might be helpful, but back to party politics, I think they're going to have to change, and that comes for energy. Uh, and I think the energy uh, for the parties are going to make the difference. And in Barack's case, that energy came from youthful, young, uh, college-educated, activist kinds of people. And I think again, we're going to think. I think uh, the party will change, and I think it will depend on which way it goes. But I think people of color and women are going to make a real dent in the midterm elections and in 2020. Now, I, I have a feeling about which party they, they may lean toward, but I think it's that, that coalition of people of color and women. So the gender, uh, uh, ethnic, racial mix is going to make a big difference in party politics. That's if they get organized, and that's if they understand the process, and that's if they get people out to vote. All of those ifs have to come into play. <laughs> Right. So it's like a bit overwhelming. And I I mean, me as, you know, one individual, you can look at all of that and you can be like, oh, it's just so much. But you have rallied so many people together. 
where does it stand? Like, do we find the future? Where do we find the future leaders that is going to take that light and and organize and be an active participant in the political system? Well, I think those leaders will emerge and I think they're emerging now. And we just have to we, we just have to be vigilant. I think social media, I think all forms of media are, are going to be helpful here. And, and because people can get information in so many ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was in politics, working for uh, Governor Clinton, when he ran for president in 92, uh, working for Barack Obama later, uh, I've been working on the national scene. I worked for Marion Barry in the city elections in Washington, D.C. Uh, those things, those were back in the 80s and 90s. Things have changed tremendously with technology. Yes. So uh, somebody who understands technology and can embrace it, that's going to be a big difference. And then motivating people who believe as you believe will make the difference. And I, so, so I think those leaders will emerge. And my, my hunch will be that it will be a person of color and women. So those are where the leadership is going to come, whether it's the Asian community, Hispanic community, African-American community, white community above, I think uh, it's going to be uh, that leader, those leaders will emerge. They'll emerge. Now, and it's happening right now. Yes. Well, that that's pretty hopeful. <laughs> um, I'm glad that <laughs> you're saying that. I, I mean, I do see a change. I do see more and more younger people getting involved in what's happening and also, you know, not playing a victim, but being part of the process. Yes. You know, I must say very quickly that in order for it to work, people have to see value in the process. Mm-hmm. You know, some people may be turned off with just the word politics. Yeah. Some people may be turned off by by being rebuffed by a politician or hearing a politician lie or hearing graft and corruption and hearing gerrymandering and all the negatives. And so some people may just be turned off with the process. Mm-hmm. But I say to them that don't turn off, turn on, because there is value in making this process work. Mm-hmm. Because there have been changes in this country. I mean, the Vietnam War was halted by young people. The civil rights movement was changed by activists and people who took to the streets. Women's rights have, have, have come on uh, on the scene because women have organized and saying, me too, that we can change things. So I think if you show value in, in why I should get involved, I think you'll get converged to the process. Yeah. And like we talk about sports and how sports is all political for me. Like, I mean, look at the Olympics during World War Two. Like, it's like all politics. <laughs> look what's happening now with the football players and, you know, the president talking about the football players. It's politics. And we, we right. have to acknowledge it. I mean, I know people say, well, I don't want to talk about politics, but it's politics. They're everywhere. Yes. And so, again, I think, you know, it's all about labels and, and, and communication. I've been involved in communication in the media. And it's all about how things are presented and how things are labeled. And so politics sometimes in the word under quotes can get a very negative uh, kind of connotation. But we're really talking about civic discourse. This is a democracy. So democracy is representation. Uh, Our democratic government is of the people. And so we choose people to represent us. And we can get leaders who lead us. And so it's all a part of the democratic system. And there are processes. There are processes in the city government, county government, state government, 
federal government, do you know how they operate? Do you know what it takes? And because it can effectuate change. How much you're paying uh, in, in taxes? Your property taxes support, in most school districts, they're supported by the property tax. Mm-hmm. So are you involved in this? Right. And so how are your schools? They're related to, so you call it politics. It's civic discourse. And so in the democratic system, you need to be involved because it's all a part of your everyday life. And it will impact your everyday life. So you need to be there to change it if it needs to be changed. And that's why my book, uh, No Condition is Permanent, is an African proverb that I I heard and saw in Nigeria, because it says that it's all about change. Mm -hmm. Do you see a difference in people overseas contributing to their political structure? Well, again, that's that's a very tough question, because the systems in the various countries are so different. Uh, you know, uh, in English, and much of our system is patterned along English law, and but they have a parliamentary system, and uh, so that operates very different from our, our, our three branches of government, uh, judiciary, legislative, and executive, and how our judiciary, uh, legislative works is very different in parliamentary system. And when I was in South Africa, uh, it had been uh, influenced by by UK, uh, it has sort of a, a parliament, it does have a parliamentary system. And many of the islands uh, in the Caribbean, uh, because they were, had been colonies or associated with, with UK, they have a parliamentary system. So um, whether or not they're involved, there may be people, say when you get to Scandinavia, people who vote more uh, than, than at least per capita than we do, and they take advantage of the system. Uh, because maybe they see the value of, uh, of, of voting. So it's hard to judge uh, as to whether those systems people are more involved than we are. I think you have to look at them on an individual basis. And again, that's the value of geography <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and understanding how other systems work because they're not alike. And everybody kind of thinks if you're so shallow that, you know, it's all America. Uh, but let me tell you, America has bits and pieces of other systems around the world, yes. and uh, we don't have all the answers either. Yes. <laughs> uh, can Can you tell us about the farming system in South Africa? <laughs> I know that's kind of flipped, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know what you where you're headed. Uh, our president has Our president has inserted himself into the uh, uh, South Africa and what's happening in. In, in the farm system, but but basically uh, the the issue is one of land distribution, and that's that's a big issue. And that issue raised its head in Zimbabwe uh, when uh, Mugabe decided he was going to push the white farmers out because uh, uh, there was uh, unequal land dis- distribution. So his his basic philosophy might have been uh, uh, made sense for the majority black country because. Uh, the Manchester Agreement, uh, which they had entered into with, with England, uh, was not working. And so the, the distribution system was not equal. But the, his method of doing it, we probably could argue with. And the same in South Africa, if there's a land distribution question because of the old uh, party, uh, which was the white minority rule, then there may be some efforts to change that distribution system. And hopefully it will be done more equitably and more fairly. But our president inserted himself without understanding the facts, and I think he did it to distract, yeah. and I think he did it to be divisive. So when you were the U.S. ambassadors to South Africa, what challenges did you see and what strategies did you use to, uh, I, I guess, move forward in, here in America? Yes, what you, what you have to understand is, again, how the system works. 
And uh, being a U.S. ambassador, you are appointed and nominated by the President of the United States and confirmed by the United States Senate. And your job is to represent uh, the United States uh, in foreign relations. And so you are the president's personal representative to the country that you serve. Uh, when you present your credentials to the, to the country, and I presented my credentials to Tabo and Becky in January 2000, uh, the credentials basically lay out your functions. And you, you, you report through the Secretary of State to the President. So you have to understand the foreign policy of the U.S. You have to be able to, uh, to articulate it, uh, defend it when necessary, and you are a messenger, and you take uh, uh, information back from the country that you serve, back to the Secretary of State and to the President, and you take messages from Secretary of State and the President back to the country. So when you say what were your, what did you accomplish and what were your objectives, you have to keep in mind that I was chief of mission for the U.S. mission in South Africa. So my job is to represent uh, the U.S. But having said that, I was very interested, as most missions are, in bilateral, good bilateral relationships. So you want to be a good friend to the country that you're serving and you're accredited to. So uh, I went over with a mission in three areas, uh, education, uh, being able to help uh, them in developing education, uh, HIV and AIDS was an, uh, a real issue, so health was a, the second area, and economic development was the third. I wanted to promote private and certainly American, but other private investment to help South Africa grow. So those are the three things that I emphasized in the mission. And I was very, I was successful on, 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 on many of those uh, grounds, and I must say on one in particular, uh, I worked with my economics officer uh, at the embassy, and we worked uh, helping Boeing air Aircraft, who was bidding on uh, a contract with South African Air to build 16 planes for South African Airways, and uh, they were trying to win the bid against Airbus. Mm. So this was an American company, Boeing, and it was a $2.3 uh, billion contract. And uh, so we worked as an embassy to promote uh, our American business, Boeing, but also to, uh, to bring, uh, we thought, the American technology uh, uh, to, to South Africa in, in, the, in the airline industry. So long story short, we beat out Airbus. We won the bid. And uh, that was a real triumph, not only for Boeing, but I think for the U.S. mission. This is ESPN LA 710. I'm speaking with Ambassador Delano Lewis, talking about his new book, No Condition is Permanent. And uh, you can find out more information on AmbassadorDelanoLewis.com. Now, uh, Ambassador Lewis, can you talk about, you know, we're, we're talking about like technology and how many things are changing. When... Yes. You used to work for telecommunications. You were at NPR running things. Did you see the vision of where we were going back then? Well, I, I you know, as I taught it, started at the first part of this interview, I'm a trained lawyer, so I'm not a technology person. But again, one of the things I want to say to, to the listeners and those who read my books is that you can grow and you can learn. And uh, there's never too late, late to learn and to grow. Uh, and to be open to new things. So I was got into the business world um, as an executive with Chesapeake and Potomac Telephone Company in Washington, D.C., and it was one of uh, four operating companies of the old AT&T, American Telephone and Telegraph System, and it was CNP, Chesapeake and Potomac Telephone Company of Maryland, Virginia, 
mm-hmm. West Virginia and the district. And I rose up through the ranks and ended up becoming president of the uh, operations uh, in, in the district. And we were part of the uh, of the baby Bell, Bell Atlantic. And now uh, it's a part, it's a company called Verizon. So I retired after 21 years uh, uh, from Verizon. But what I, I was recruited there as a lawyer, but I was able to work with lawyers on the regulatory side, but I had good mentors, and I talk about that in the book, mm-hmm. and I was able to understand the business and to work in the business, and I had a mentor who was my vice president. So I went from a public affairs manager to assistant vice president, working directly with the vice president who was running the operations in the district, and I succeeded him when he retired. Uh, so I moved my way. I moved up the ladder, but I began to understand the telecom business. So after I retired, I was recruited by an executive search firm to apply for the job at National Public Radio, and I put my hat in the ring, and I was ultimately selected. Uh, and to answer your question about vision, when I came in, I had some sense of technology, but I also had a sense of where I thought things might go. Uh, although I wasn't a technology person, I could see the internet on the horizon. I could see it impacting us in the telecom field when I was with Bell Atlantic and Verizon, and I could certainly see it impacting the media field. So one of the things I did after a year or so, there I was there almost five years, I took one of the chief, one of the engineers who was chief engineer at that time, and in fact I talked to him just recently, his name is Don Lockett, and Don was head of engineering, African American, and I made him uh, my chief technology officer. Mm. And what I did was, I said, I'm creating an office here. I want you to spend your time uh, thinking about the future for National Public Radio because if we don't understand how social media works, if we don't understand this new world, we're going to lose this competition and we're not we're not going to be in business. Right. And so we started uh, we started uh, a model there between real networks, a company and an ABC, um, uh, a pilot where we for it sounds like dark ages. You could get in your computer and you could see morning and morning edition on your computer and you could hear a Bob Edwards voice on your computer. Uh, so we were streaming stuff uh, with this pilot. And that was the beginning. And so now when I look back and I see NPR says, listen to NPR.org, we're the ones who started that back in the early 90s. Well, how does it feel to be that person <laughs> that's, that was the leader in to what is happening now? Well, I must tell you that for whatever reason, maybe it's growing up in Kansas, I have been very modest, although I have always wanted to, to excel and I've wanted to lead, and I've always wanted to serve, but I had some sense of modesty, and I think that's my Midwestern roots. And I'm blessed to have a supportive spouse, Gail, and four adult sons and 11 grandchildren. And my sons have been telling me, Dad, you should be sharing these experiences. (laughs) You should be telling people what you have done. You've got a story to tell, and it's a good story. And it's inspirational to us as Americans and and to our family. Mm -hmm. And so you need to talk about it. So, again, I've come out of my shell a bit, and uh, I'm talking about, yes, I did this. Yes. (laughs) But where where several years ago, I didn't didn't use the I word that much Mm -hmm. at all. A lot of people have issues with self-promotion, like, but you have to tell about your strategies, what you do in order to, right? you know, because 
not everybody knows who, you know, Laferne Cusack is. So it's like, wait a second. Right. I have to be my own self promoter. And as uncomfortable as that is, that's goes back to what you're saying. You have to take the risk and you have to share. That's right. That's exactly right. And I must say that my sons, uh, they're all entrepreneurs and I've gone through the ranks and I've depended on a paycheck and uh, all of that. And what I've learned from my son is how to think like an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And you do have to promote yourself. You do have to tell people uh, 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 what you're doing and what you can do. You also have to be able to accept no Mm -hmm. because you're going to get turned down. You're going to you're going to fail. And that's all a part of the process. You pick yourself back up and you continue with your vision and you don't give up, you persevere. But if, uh, you know, the reason that, that you are successful is that somebody knows who you are and somebody thinks that what you have is of value. And so that's what I'm doing with my two books. Uh, you can get those books, It All Begins With Self and No Condition Is Permanent, uh, through my website, ambassadordelanolewis.com. And uh, you can get those books. And I think they will be of some value to you. Yes. Um, Ambassador Lewis, can you talk about your experience at KU? And I'm not holding it against you because I'm a (laughs) (laughs) K-Stater. I I heard about that. I heard about that. I'll forgive you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Well, my experience is at KU. Um, (laughs) KU still uh, is uh, dear to my heart. Um, I uh, received... uh, um, a Distinguished uh, Service Award from KU in the early 90s. And then just last year, I received a Distinguished Alumni Award from the College of Liberal Arts because I graduated with a degree in political science and history. And so, again, back to our early question, I've always been interested in political science and, and the system. So I even learned it and, 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 and studied it uh, in college and Certainly, it was a part of, of law school as well. So uh, KU uh, is very instrumental uh, and strong in my life. Um, many of my role models at Sumner High School uh, were African-American men, uh, my science teacher, my um, band teacher, um, and my chemistry teacher. My band teacher in particular, I was trumpet player in the band and drum major of the band in high school. And he was a uh, University of Kansas grad, and he was also a member of Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. So I knew from these strong role models, and I must put my father in there because he was a railroad porter for the Santa Fe Railroad. He was not a college graduate, but he was 37 years on the Santa Fe Railroad. And I salute him, although he's not with us today. And my mother, they're both deceased, but a strong mother and and a devoted father who who paved the way by by his work ethic. But anyway, those role models uh, from, from Sumner, uh, had all gone to KU. So I knew in high school where I was going to college. I mean, it was just clear. <laughs> right. I was going to the University of Kansas, and I was going to pledge Alpha Phi Alpha, and that's exactly <laughs> what I did. Uh, so, it, uh, I met my wife there. Uh, Gail was a student there. We met uh, uh, We met early in 50, uh, 56, but we didn't start dating until 58, and we married in 60 uh, right after graduation, and I went to law school uh, married. Uh, so it, it, it's a part of my life, uh, KU. Uh, I was president of, of the fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha, in, wow. in 1960. Uh, I was a part of the Big 8 talent show when we were Big yeah. 8 uh, in the sports <laughs> world that day. I, I was a part of the t- a talent show because I was a tap dancer. And my, oh, wow. roommate, my roommate was a piano player, so he was my accompanist. 
And so we were representing uh, KU in a Big 8 talent show, and we traveled around the Big 8 schools as one of the representatives of talent from the University of Kansas. That's awesome. Uh, so it means a lot. And uh, my son and I, Jeff, who's my second son, we have a consulting uh, business together. Uh, we're doing a project at KU right now. Really? Uh, advising the dean advising the dean of the university and college of liberal arts uh, helping him with his advisory board and we're working closely with the provost uh, who is interim provost who had been the dean when we first started uh so we're actively giving ku some help uh, in terms of being i think a good university oh that's awesome now you are yes. you are on several boards and i've interviewed some of the board of directors here in los angeles for ably it's the african-american <laughs> board leadership organization right. and they talk about how important it is for african-americans or people of color to be on boards to be able to make those decisions. Can you talk about the process that it, it takes for someone to get in a board leadership position in order to make those strategic uh, strategic decisions of and make an influence on you know whatever organization they're supporting? Oh, that's a very good question. I again, I because of my business world, twenty one years in the in the telecom system. Uh, that's when I really understood what boards of directors were all about. Uh, I was running CNP Telephone Company of the District, and I had a local uh, board. Uh, and then CNP, the four companies, had a another uh, board of directors. Uh, and it was through that uh, company uh, when one of my mentors, who was running the four companies, Tom Bolger, left as president of the four companies to become an executive with uh, AT&T in New York. And he was on the board of GEICO. Uh, government employees insurance company, and you know Geico through its its its, its great advertising. Yes. <laughs> so he could he could have kept that seat, but he decided to step down. And Geico at that time sort of looked at that seat as a telephone company seat, and uh, Tom Bolger recommended me. Now, so there are two things here. Number one, you need to have the background and the skills of running something. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be on a board of directors of a Fortune 500 company or of any company of any size, that company has to uh, represent, uh, you know, uh, shareholders. Uh, that company uh, is, has investors, and that company has uh, has clients and customers, and you have to be able to give them advice, and you're an overseer as a board member. If you have never met a payroll, if you don't understand insurance, if you don't understand business, if you don't understand marketing or advertising or the law, uh, how can you advise and be an overseer as a board member? Right. So you have to have had background and experience on running something. And second piece is very clear. You need uh, relationships because someone has to recommend you based on your skill and your value to the company to say, this person can lend value to us. Uh, this person has done X or Y, is an expert or has experience in, in overseas and in, in marketing and in supply chain or in the law uh, or in medicine or this person has skills that will help our company. And uh, so we need to consider having this person on the board. So you need to have the, the necessary background and skills and have the relationships of other people who are in those positions to recommend you. So I went from GEICO. Uh, then I, my other board was 
I was 23 years on Colgate Palmolive, um, the toothpaste company and the soap company with Palmolive products and other products. And I was there for 23 years on the board. And the last uh, five or six years, I chaired the nominating and governance committee for for the board of Colgate Palmolive. And that's the committee that brought on other directors. So I worked with executive search firms, and uh, I must say that I was very much a part of the diversity that is now on the board of Colgate. I stepped down two years ago, but we have, I think, at my last, I think there are at least three women on the board, and there are two persons of color. Uh, so of a very small 11-member board, there is diversity there, and I can take some credit as the chair of the Nominating Governance Committee. So as a board member, you're at the table, you're involved in the decisions, uh, you represent the shareholders, and you are assisting management in running uh, the company. So you're not involved in the, in, in the operations, but you're involved in the oversight to help them make the right decisions. I hear now a lot of people on boards are saying that they have to have someone that is key in cybersecurity. And that's the that's the new thing yeah. that a lot of people on boards are saying is like, okay, now this is <laughs> this is what we need. This is how boards are changing. Absolutely. Now. Absolutely. And again, you know, you say, well, look, I'm a lawyer and I don't know anything about this, but well, you can learn and you can you can begin to open your mind to those kinds of things. And if you were involved in uh, technology before, then you need to figure out what is AI, what is artificial intelligence, what cybersecurity, what are the risks involved. So you don't necessarily have to be a technical expert, Mm -hmm. but you can understand what what it is. You can understand the risk. You can understand uh, the issue so that when you are called upon as a board member, you'll have some basic knowledge. So a lot of things I'm talking about is, yes, you can go to college and you can get the necessary skill uh, and, 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 the, and the, the background, and you may need that, but you can also do this on your own. Mm-hmm. There's no, you know, th- this world today, particularly with the Internet and the information that's out there, you can educate yourself. You can expand your horizons uh, and you can learn, but you've mm-hmm. got to be open to it. But if it's a part of your focus, it's a part of your game plan, you'll figure out how to do that. Yeah, you have the passion to succeed. Like you say in your book, Absolutely. it all begins with self. Can Before we go, That's Ambassador right. Lewis, can you give us um, one of your triumphs that you highlight in your book, No Condition is per- Permanent? Yes, I think uh, I've mentioned a couple of the triumphs. Uh, certainly uh, um, the the one at the South Africa Embassy and uh, this, the U.S. Embassy and the, and the, the Boeing contract was, yes. was a real triumph. Um, and I think um, my other triumph uh, was I won't I, 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 I highlighted in the book, uh, but there was um, uh, a real problem of flooding and torrential rains uh, in the country of Mozambique. Uh, and that c- country uh, is on the uh, east coast of, of the continent and borders uh, South Africa. And so we wanted to send uh, some relief uh, supplies to the inhabitants uh, in Mozambique. And um, uh, so these supplies would be foodstuffs and equipment and blankets and all those kinds of things. And that would come from our military establishment in Germany. Uh, and that was the, uh, again, understanding the process. And that, uh, working with our military in Germany, uh, they would, they would help us, uh, uh, with these, uh, uh, food supplies and, uh, equipment, uh, for the, uh, persons in Mozambique who were victims of the floods. Mm. And so, 
Well, oddly enough, though, uh, the foreign minister called me and said, um, I understand that you want to bring supplies to Mozambique, uh, but that is a sovereign country, and I understand that you want to uh, stage those products uh, here in South Africa uh, because you, uh, you're you going to have to airlift them uh, into Mozambique because the, the runways are not there uh, because of the floods. Uh, and But, but, but uh, we're going to need permission. Uh, you're going to need permission, and we have to have permission from Mozambique oh because we're not going to have uh, you coming in and landing your planes here and then staging and moving into another sovereign country. We need to have Mozambique says this is okay, and then we will say it's okay for you to come. So uh, we need to hear from the, the government of Mozambique. And uh, the general who was pushing this in, in, in Germany kept saying, all right, Mr. Ambassador, we're ready to go. I mean, give us the signal. What's wrong down there? And I'm now trying to diplomatically figure out how do I get this permission? <laughs> so my deputy chief of mission was meeting with some people uh, that same day, and one of them happened to be from the Mozambique government. And so we were able to get to him to say, can you get to the foreign minister or to the president? And so he did, and we got the letter from Mozambique. So the letter came to the foreign ministry's office, but we still didn't get any approval. Wow. Meanwhile, the, UK, the United, United Kingdom high commissioner, they don't call that person ambassador, it's a high commissioner, she called me and said, we're getting ready to send our planes in because we're going to do the same thing. We're going to give relief to the victims in Mozambique. I said, well, look, you're going to need a letter from, from the government of Mozambique. She said, oh, no, I don't think that's just bureaucracy. We're going to do it anyway. I said, <laughs> I'm not so sure that'll work. Uh-oh. She said, well, we're going to do it. So anyway, I finally got, uh, the letter was sitting on the foreign minister's desk. No action was happening. So I got a good contact in the president's office, and she was a counsel to the president, President Becky. And I said, look, I need your help. I called her late at night. I need to get this off of the foreign minister's desk. We do have approval, but I need her to say it's okay for my planes to come in. So she managed to get to the foreign minister. She finally got the approval. I got to the general and said, okay, we can land the food supplies and the equipment here. Come on in. Meanwhile, my colleague from the UK did not have a letter, uh. and her planes were turned back. Her <gasps> oh. planes never landed. Her planes were turned back. She did not believe the system. She went against the system. I worked with the system. I got all the necessary letters. We got the foodstuffs in, and we got them to Mozambique. Wow. One of my great friends. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Oh, it was hard work. It yeah. was hard work. <laughs> yes, it is. It was. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, thank you so uh, much for sharing well, that. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking with you, LaFrance. Yes. It's been wonderful. And again, you can go to Ambassador Delano Lewis uh, to find out more about him and get the book, No Condition is permanent. Such a pleasure. Have a wonderful week. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is ESPN LA 710. ESPN LA 710.